0: The National Archives podcast series The Life and Death of King John, presented by Professor David Carpenter, Professor Stephen Church, and Dr Mark Morris. This talk was recorded on the 18th of October 2016 at the National Archives Q. Hello,
1: everyone. My name is Jessica Nelson. I am the head of the uh, Medieval, Early, Modern, and Legal teams here at the National Archives. And it's my pleasure to welcome you all here this evening to our events to commemorate the 800th anniversary of the death of King John. So we've got three speakers here tonight, all of whom are experts on, on King John. I'm going to introduce them all now, and then they'll come up each in turn and sort of talk for 10 minutes or so. First of all, we're going to kick off with Stephen Church. Stephen is a professor of medieval history at the University of East Anglia. He's devoted much of his career to studying King John and most recently has published a biography of him. He's going to talk first about sort of the early career of uh, of King John while he was still John and then Count John. Then we're going to hand over to Dr. Mark Morris, um, who's a broadcaster and uh, best-selling historian. He's also recently written a a biography of King John, has also published widely on a variety of other medieval subjects, including recently a biography of William the Conqueror. Uh, And then last but definitely not least, uh, it's Professor David Carpenter, um, who is from King's College, London. And David was a supervisor or lecturer of both Stephen and Mark. So if you wholeheartedly disagree with everything that Mark and, uh, and Stephen have to say, then uh, you can probably blame David for that. And he's going to round off, um, after Mark's talked about sort of King John's reign, David's going to round off talking specifically about King John and Magna Carta. So without further ado, can we welcome Professor Stephen Church?
0: Well, thank you very much indeed for that kind introduction. Um, I get the job of setting the scene, really. Uh, and what I want to do is rather than sort of take you through um, John's life from his birth in 1166 through to uh, his accession as king in 1199, I wanted to try and uh, draw out a particular theme. Uh, And what I'm trying to think about in this talk, in this sort of 10-minute introduction, this scene-setting introduction to John, is to think about uh, John uh, and try to get away from John as the uh, comic book villain. He he is our favourite comic book villain, I think. Um, Most of us are introduced to John as the wicked Prince John in those Robin Hood tales, and what image we have of him depends whether it was a Disney cartoon that we first came across John or whether we came a- across John in some sort of uh, book or comic book. Uh, and he is the villain of the piece, and we can see him very clearly as the villain of the piece because he is the main protagonist, or at least his uh, deputy, the, the, the Sheriff of Nottingham, is the main protagonist against. Um, Uh, Robin Hood, who we know is good. Robin Hood uh, stands for all things that are good, even though he's uh, an outlaw. And we come across John as the man who was struggling, who was attempting to take from the brave Richard the Lionheart, attempting to take from uh, Richard, his brother, the kingdom, attempting to take it uh, for himself. But what I want to try and persuade you to do is to um, to try and throw away that image that you have of John. Uh, I mean, I would say that it's a hard image for professional historians and non-professional historians alike to overcome. These are the sorts of things that we're brought up with as children and they're hardwired into us and we need to, to, to try um, in a very conscious way to overcome that hardwiring that got there uh, when we were Uh, uh, children. And it's therefore very easy also to fall into the trap, I think, of seeing John's life in retrospect. We know where it's going to end. Um, Mark and David are going to tell us where it's going to end. It's going to end in uh, disaster. But I don't think that we should start out by seeing John as being inevitably heading in the direction of, um, uh, of disaster. Now, there's no doubt at all that John was a schemer. And I wouldn't want you to go away from this talk thinking that the young John was a good lad who went astray. But I want to try and contextualise that for you, contextualise that scheming John of our imaginations, that scheming John of the Robin Hood legend, that scheming John who is attempting to take away from Richard his rightful uh, kingdom. And I suppose The context context of this is, we have to think about who John was. John was born in the winter of 1166, uh, 1167, and he was the eighth child of the most charismatic couple of mid-12th century Europe. Henry II, who was ruler of England, he was ruler of Normandy, he was ruler of Anjou, he was ruler in right of his wife of Aquitaine, and his wife, of course, was Eleanor of Aquitaine, still remembered fondly by the French and still a name that we can conjure with uh, today. And he was their eighth child, their youngest child. In 1169, Henry II made a decision. Let's not go into the reason why he made this decision, but he made a decision to divide his inheritance, to let it be known what would happen to those lands once he had died. And in this division, He left out John. John was completely excluded from it. And that's perhaps not surprising. John was only two at the time. Uh, Henry II and Eleanor were seasoned enough parents to know that um, children uh, had a a struggle getting through those first years of life. And and why divide up your lands with uh, a small boy who might not even make it to the age of five, let alone make it to the age of uh, adulthood? And presumably, John wouldn't have remembered this. This is not to delve into psychohistory, but who of us remembers what was going on when we were two? But when John was five, something quite extraordinary happened, and it may well have been something that he would have remembered. When he was five, his father tried to rectify, began to to, to attempt to rectify the problem of John, rectify the fact that John had no land, that John was uh, lackland. And he gave to John, or he fianced him, to a a young girl called Alice of Savoy. Now, this act threw the um, family of Henry II into a political crisis. And it threw it into a political crisis because one of the things that Henry wanted to do was to give some castles to John as part of his marriage portion, and these castles, In the mind of Henry II's eldest son, Henry, who had been crowned as a king in 1170, so only three years before, these were his territories, and his father should not be giving away these castles, giving away these castles uh, without his, uh, his permission. So during the years 1173, 1174, there was an extraordinary civil war which raged across Henry II's lands, Henry II and Eleanor's lands. And it looks like Eleanor of Aquitaine was at the heart of this civil war. In fact, Eleanor, at the end of this civil war, was placed into prison in 1174 and not released until her vengeful uh, husband had died in 1189. She seems to have been a very important part of this um, um, this uh, civil war that was going on. And the civil war involved Henry II and Eleanor's sons. John was not involved in it, but, but Henry, the young king, the next son in line, Richard, Richard the Lionheart. Remember him? Famous Richard the Lionheart, our hero. And uh, Geoffrey. We often forget Geoffrey because Geoffrey of Brittany uh, died uh, before his father died. He died in a, in a, in a tournament accident um, in And I've forgotten 1187 or something like that. 1187, 1188, no, 1186. So the first memory that John must have had was a family in dispute. The lessons that he must have learnt from this, aged um, just five, six in 1174, was that brothers fought, that brothers rebelled that sons fought, that sons rebelled. And actually, the lesson of 1174 was that Henry II won, winner takes all. The boys were put back in their respective boxes. Eleanor of Aquitaine was locked up in a castle. William the Lion, the King of Scots, who had been foolish enough to get himself involved in it, he had a difficult time of it too. So the lesson that John learnt from that must have been that the winner takes all. There were other rebellions in Johns in Henry II's reign as well. So in the winter of 1182, 1183, the young king again went into rebellion. We don't need to go into the reason why he went into rebellion, but the young king stalked off. The brothers were at each other's throats. this time Richard and Geoffrey um, essentially on the side on each other's side, um, with a face off with the young king Henry. When the young King Henry died in 1183, that was the point that um, John was brought into the political equation. He was 16, his father suddenly um, um, wanted to bring him actually to the very heart of the uh, the, 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 the politics of the era, and he decided that what he wanted to do was to give John Aquitaine. Now, in the division of 1169, Richard had been given Aquitaine. Richard wasn't too keen on the idea of giving up Aquitaine, and he dug his heels in. So what did Henry II do? He authorised John and his brother Geoffrey to make war on Richard. Now, as it turned out, Richard was far too effective and far too well entrenched in Aquitaine to be levered out of Aquitaine by these two younger brothers. But again, this lesson that John is learning as he grows up in these most formative years is that actually what you do is you go into rebellion, you fight for what you think um, is uh, yours. The lesson is brothers fight, sons fight, sons rebel, brothers rebel, uh, the winner takes all. And the winner takes all in 1189 as well, because when Henry II died, the person who took over the whole of those Angevin lands was, in fact, Richard. And it may well have been that John thought that he should have a share in these lands. But not according to Richard. Richard took all of Henry II's lands. There was to be no division of Henry II's lands, as Henry had intended in 1169, that Richard would take them all. Now, John, um, in the build-up to Richard taking all these territories, he got lands too. He got the Duchy of Cornwall. He got the Earldom of Gloucester. He got the County of Mortain in Normandy. And he got other lands. But interestingly, if you look at these lands, these are always lands given to the cadet branches of the royal family in England or the cadet branches of the ducal family in Normandy. In other words, these were lands that went to the line that was being sidelined yes, you have power in this life, but actually uh, you you are being sidelined. And in fact, you're being sidelined in such a way that actually it's not even clear that your heirs will inherit these lands, because it looks very much like Mortain and Cornwall and the earldom of Gloucester were tied in so firmly into the royal and ducal houses that in fact these lands in the next generation or in the generation afterwards would be sucked back into the the, the 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 overall purse of royal lands. So it looks in 1189 as if John is being sidelined. He's being okay. He's being given an awful lot, but he's being sidelined. And off then Richard goes on crusade. Returns is foolish enough to get himself captured by first of all Duke Leopold of Austria, who then hands him over to the Emperor, um, the Emperor of Germany, Henry the Emperor of Germany, and. Uh, Richard is um, incarcerated in a castle. And this is precisely the moment that John decided that his opportunity had arrived to take the Angevin inheritance for himself. Because what had he learned from the age of five onwards? He'd learned that brothers fight, that brothers rebel, that sons fight, that sons rebel, that the winner takes all. The problem that John had was that Actually, Normandy, under the leadership of the Seneschal, England, under the leadership, well, probably under the leadership of Eleanor of Aquitaine, refused to give in to John, maintained their hope that Richard would eventually be uh, released. And John was, in failing in that regard, was driven into the hands of the French king, driven into the arms of the French king, uh, Philip Augustus. And eventually, in January 1194, and this is the moment when I think we get a real insight into John the man. In January 1194, at the moment that Richard was about to be released. Everybody in Christendom knew that Richard was about to release. At that particular moment, John threw the dice a final time, issued a letter, issued a charter um, um, uh, from the uh, French court at Paris, giving Normandy, or giving a chunk of Normandy, to the French king. The French king had been after Normandy since he'd come to the throne in 1180, cutting the heart out of the Angevin inheritance in return for Philip Augustus's permission to take um, what remained of the Duchy of Normandy in the other French lands. This was going to be the moment when uh, John would be victorious. But that last throw of the dice didn't work. And it didn't work in the end, I think, because People were loyal, people who counted were loyal to Richard. They saw in Richard something that they admired and something that they wanted to stand by. And they saw in John something that they didn't admire, that they didn't want to stand by. And it's very difficult, I think, for us at this remove to see what that was. But I have one suggestion for you. And that is that John was educated in a way that was completely different to the way that his brothers were educated. His brothers learned to fight. They went into households, they uh, they learnt the art of warfare. John was educated like his sisters. He went to the Abbey of Fontevrault, and that's where he received his education. Not as some historians have argued, I think, because Henry II and Ella intended John to go into the church, I don't think it's that at all. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a series of arrangements made. So we get the arrangement for the marriage in 1173. We get an arrangement for a marriage to Isabella of Gloucester in 1176. We get John made king of Ireland in 1177. So I don't think the intention is that John should go into the church. John was going to have a a thoroughly um, normal, secular life. But there was something in John that made him less suitable for that military life. And one of the things that strikes me about John in every engagement that he had thereafter is that he didn't quite operate in that male, very masculine, um, warrior, aristocratic crowd that surrounded the king. And that's just one suggestion. It may well be that that is at the heart of our King John, that John was uh, not a man's man. He didn't operate in that sort of way that other men in that society uh, understood. I have had my time.
2: Good evening. Right, I'm so pleased that Stephen began with um, reminding you of uh, the John of legend, the John of storybooks, the Disney John, Bad King John, Um, because I want you to, uh, have that image foremost in your minds because that is the John I think most closely corresponds to reality. Um, I think it's one of those happy occasions where even Walt Disney managed to get it right. (laughs) Because John was a total jerk. And I want to just emphasize a couple of qualities is the wrong word, a couple of um, aspects of his character by really sketching out the first few years of his reign. So John comes to the throne in 1199 when, as you probably all know, Richard is hit by a crossbow bolt when he's besieging this tiny castle called Chalou in southern France near Limoges. And you might think, well John's time has finally come because he is the last surviving son of Eleanor of Aquitaine and, and Henry II, but he has a problem in the shape of his nephew Arthur, the son of his uh, older brother Geoffrey who died in 1186. And Arthur is a real problem for John. You might think again, well, surely there were rules. You know, does it go to the nephew or does it go to the uncle in this instance? Well, if you were talking about maybe 50, 60 years later, then there were more clearly defined rules. You can see that operating in the later 13th century. The turn of the 12th and 13th centuries, not so much. And then, and again, the rules differed according to which bit of the Angevin Empire you were standing in. So what law was in England differed to the law in Anjou, differed to the law in Brittany, differed to the law in Normandy what it boiled down to in 1199 was how much political support each candidate had and without driving home the parallel it basically was whether you were a Remainer in the Angevin Empire or you wanted to leave Arthur had been raised in Brittany he was the son of Geoffrey Duke of Brittany he was the Duke of Brittany himself albeit a teenage boy and Brittany had been forcibly annexed by Henry II during his reign, so the Bretons, much like their Celtic cousins the Welsh, wanted out. In Normandy, by contrast, and in England, most of the greatest men in these countries still had lands each side of the Channel as a legacy of the Norman Conquest. So a man like William Marshall or Roger Bigot, Earl of Norfolk, men like that wanted to keep their, their lands on both sides of the Channel under the same ruler. So they wanted a unity candidate like John. John was that unity candidate. and The two sides went to war in 1199, and Arthur was backed by Philip Augustus, and I'm not going to try and search for a modern parallel to Philip Augustus, but some outside power that was happy to see the Angevin Empire broken up. Now, initially, in this succession dispute, John does quite well. You can make a case to say John, at the top of his reign, acquits himself reasonably well. You can also demolish that case if you've got more time, as I do in my book. But for the sake of argument, let's say... John manages, by 1200, to persuade both Arthur and his rival, Philip Augustus, King of France, to recognise him as heir to the entirety of Richard's inheritance. So, England, Normandy, Anjou, Aquitaine. But, fairly quickly, John contrives to reopen that war, and by 1202, the war has re-erupted. It's at this point that John, I think probably the greatest military coup of his life pulls off this astonishing military coup when he hears that his elderly mother Eleanor of Aquitaine is being besieged in a castle um, in Poitou called Mirabeau and he rushes south to save her and she's being besieged by Arthur and the barons of Poitou and John manages to capture all of them. He captures not only Arthur but almost all of his supporters he sends a jubilant letter back to England that August saying we got them all the letter concludes God be praised for our happy success but the point I want to make off the back of this is John contrives to throw this away very quickly and the reason it seems to me he 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 threatens away this trump card is his cruelty it's his outstanding cruelty now some of you may think well hang on this is the middle ages and haven't you heard Cruelty was par for the course. I've read my Shakespeare. I've seen my Game of Thrones. People generally weren't that nice to each other. But that is true of parts of the Middle Ages. It's true in pre-conquest England, when there were Vikings running around. It's true in late medieval England. As you will know from your Shakespeare, people are forever being having their heads chopped off or being stabbed through the arras. In the 12th and 13th centuries, not nearly so much, not at all in fact. Between 1076, when William the Conqueror orders the execution of Earl Waltheof, and 1306, when Edward I does in the Earl of Athol, 230 years, no earl is deliberately put to death. In this period, chivalry reigns. You capture your enemies, you imprison your enemies, you keep them in comfortable confinement, and if they promise to be very good and give you sufficient pledges and guarantees, you then let them go. But you don't mistreat them, and you certainly don't murder them. Unless you're John. (laughs) John repeatedly breaks this taboo. The prisoners taken at Mirabeau, we're told, are led away in chains and carts. And the history of William Marshall says he kept his prisoners in such a horrible manner and in such abject confinement that it seemed an indignity and a disgrace to all those with him who witnessed his cruelty." So they're the key words, indignity, disgrace, cruelty. And what he does with these captives is genuinely shocking. It's something that's been skirted over by uh, historians of John's reign. But in the case of 22 of those Poitaville prisoners, these are knightly prisoners, these aren't sort of common men infantry, 22 scions of noble families. He sends them to various castles in England but at the start of 1203, in February 1203, he sends letters back to England, ordering them to be rounded, rounded up and sent to Corfe, where they are deliberately starved to death. We have the testimony of four independent chroniclers that suggest as much, or assert as much, and, and, and suggest as much in two cases. This is not acceptable behaviour. I mean, even a Viking, that would be a real, you know, uh, a black mark against their reputation. But for a king... Reigning in the in this period of high chivalry, it really blackens this man's reputation, and it's of course something I haven't got time to discuss it now. But he he he's a repeat offender, having starved these twenty two knights to death. It's a trick he he later repeats with uh, the wife of William de Brios, the adult son of William de Brios, and he threatens to do it during the Magna Carta civil war. He also murders his own nephew, or at least arranges the disappearance of his own nephew a couple of months later, April 1203. And again, this is something that really, sh- it's the only good bit in Shakespeare's Dreadful King John play, uh, the, the, the murder of Arthur. And Shakespeare, of course, lets John off the hook because Arthur is spared in the play and, uh, uh, and falls to his death trying to escape with knotted bedsheets. But contemporaries gave John no such benefit of the doubt. Contemporaries allege that John had either murdered Arthur with his own hand or simply had him removed uh, by assassins. But either way, John is, uh, Arthur is in John's care, in his custody, when he is rubbed out at Easter 1203. And these dreadful acts, by me- even by medieval standards, do John no good at all. He's evidently trying to prove his strength. He's evidently trying to demonstrate that he is not to be trifled with. And yet, a few weeks after Arthur's death, when Philip Augustus invades Normandy, John, characteristically and not for the last time, responds by running away. He sends William Marshall to try and save Richard the Lionheart's great spectacular new fortress at Chateau Gaillard, uh, a nighttime operation that goes badly wrong. But John makes no effort to resist this French invasion of Normandy. And a couple of months later, he runs away. He leaves the Normans to their fate and retires to England. Normandy The following March, Chateau-Gaillard falls, and the following summer in 1204, Normandy falls to the French. Almost without a break, there are a couple of small breaks, but after 140 years odd of being bound to England since 1066, Normandy and England go their separate ways. So this is a very big geopolitical shift. And it's down to John's cowardice. Um, it's, It's a repeated charge against John. No man may trust him, said Bertrand de Bourne, for his heart is soft and cowardly. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a repeated charge. And the loss of Normandy means John is deeply ashamed. I think you can read, certainly in some 19th, perhaps even some 20th century treatments of John's reign, you can walk away with the notion that, well, who needs bits of France anyway? You know, Now England is in ma- you know, mag- magnificent isolation and it can concentrate on its manifest destiny to you know, uh, go and make trade deals. I mean, sorry, conquer <laughs> the rest of the British Isles and the world. But for contemporaries, for John, you know, these rulers, Henry II was born in Le Mans. That's why he was trying to head to Le Mans when he felt mortally ill. There's a reason Henry II is buried at Fontevraud and not Westminster. There's a reason Richard is buried there as well. These men were Angevin princes first and foremost. You know, they'd ruled England ancestrally since 1066, but they ruled Anjou had been uh, their patrimony since the 10th century. And John has lost it. John's lost Normandy. John has lost the fatherland. And it is deeply shameful. He has lost the lands that his father assembled and his brother maintained. And so he spends the rest of his reign desperately trying to get them back. And it all boils down to one thing, which is raising money. Raising money to pay for men. And this is something that David will, shortly enlarge upon. But it means the rest of his reign, he is extracting money from England on a scale that hadn't been seen in Nick Barrett's famous words... Since the conquest, a level of exploitation not seen since 1066. So he imposes massive fines for inheritance, four figure sums, at a time when you were lucky if you were getting a three figure sum as your take home pay. He imposes huge taxes. He sells justice on an industrial scale, right down to a very low, sort of middling gentry level, enormous fines for trivial offences. He demands money from previously exempt groups, like the Cistercians. He extracts more money than any previous king from his Jewish subjects, rounding them up and torturing them until they agree to pay up. So by 1211, he had his income, which had initially been about 20 or £25,000 a year, had skyrocketed to something like £145,000 a year. He multiplied his income by a factor of five or six. But it comes at a cost, and the cost is political discontent. And the result, as we know, after last year's jamboree, is Magna Carta. At which point I should hand over to the the maestro of Magna Carta, (laughs) Professor Carpenter.
3: Well, um, thank you. I think two fascinating talks and a lot to compare and contrast in them. I thought there were things in common... In that both stress John's lack of sort of macho ability when it came to to warfare, um, but on the other hand, Mark placed uh, much more emphasis on John's cruelty, which Stephen didn't. And I should be interested to hear. I think that's something we might try and debate um, what what Stephen thinks about cruelty. I don't quite agree about John and warfare, but we we might uh, come on to that anyway. Let me recommend both their books, uh, which do give a, you know, they're beautifully complementary books, which give a different sort of perspective on John. Lots in common, lots not. Um, What I thought I'd do today is talk very briefly, um, very directly, about John's attitude to Magna Carta. And I think we've got two things to look at there. One is, or two things I am going to look at there. One is, why did he concede it? And then secondly, why within little more than a month did he reject it? So let's start then asking ourselves why in 1215 did John, what brought John to the negotiating table? And I think that's the easiest question to answer because of course it was the fall of London, the fall of London on the 10th of May uh, 1215. And of course that was a hammer blow for John because what it meant was he could no longer easily win the war. Indeed, he couldn't really see a way forward of winning the war because, of course, London is so vast, it can't be besieged. All the resources of London are now at the disposal of the barons. They garrison the walls. So the war cannot be won. And so John now thinks, let's try another tack. Let's negotiate. Let's see if we can reach a peaceful settlement in which people will lay down their arms and we'll, there'll be peace. And so John, a, before the fall of London, he's not in serious negotiations with the barons. Afterwards, he is. And so that brings us to the negotiations at Runnymede and to um, this document here. Because this is, these were the terms presented to John at the start in Runnymede. This is in a wonderful 18th century, early 19th century engraving because the original is now so faded. And it's called, of course, as you all know, the Articles of the Barons. And probably this was presented to John at the start of negotiations at Runnymede. Incidentally, if you want to ask about Runnymede uh, and the place, there has been some fascinating new sort of work on the archaeology of Runnymede, which we might um, talk about. Now, so John sees this and he sealed it in, in order to indicate that he accepted those terms not as the final settlement but as a basis of negotiation. Now this is where we've now got another really big question to ask because why on earth was John prepared to negotiate on those absolutely poisonous terms? Now it's perfectly true there are some things in those demands and some things in the eventual Magna Carta to which they led and there's that wonderful 1733 engraving of one of the four O- originals, so there were some things which were acceptable, like the expansion of of, of the common law but uh, I mean the great bulk of it must have been rat poison you know the hundred pound baronial relief, um, taxes, scootage requiring the common consent of the kingdom, and above all, of course, at the end, there is this terrible security clause i mean this is the whole that extraordinary thing in which the John empowers. Um, the barons to choose 25 of their number to enforce the charter and actually although it's very rarely commented on they had a wider brief than that the 25 in that you could go to them with any complaints of injustice at all so they were a permanent commission monitoring the whole running of, of royal government and I think that great old historian V.H. Galbraith was right to say that you know this together represented the most fantastic surrender of any king to his subjects. So why on earth has John, is John prepared to agree it? Now, I think this is a much harder question to answer. The London one is easy. Why John accepted the terms, we can only be prepared to negotiate on those terms. I think we can only speculate. My own view, though, is this, that, one, that John was prepared to gamble. I think John was a great short-term political maneuverer He thinks around the angles of all sorts of problems. And he thought around this one and actually got it wrong. But, you know, he might have been right. And what John calculated was this. If I concede the charter, everybody will... It will lead to peace. Everyone will go home. Everyone will lay down their arms. And then they'll forget all about it. But uh, what he was absolutely clear, he didn't want to happen, and and gamble would not happen, was that A... He didn't think the terms, all that awful detail of the Charter would ever be very well known. And even if it does become known, it will never be enforced. And so John's attitude to the Charter was, you know, he hoped it would become some sort of vague symbol of good government. And that would be all. It would be toothless. And within a few years, perhaps every sort of negotiations over the details, really, it would place very little restriction on his activities now John had two reasons for thinking that that might indeed be the case the first was the result of one of his most brilliant political maneuvers at Runnymede because what he did on the 15th of June was to issue the charter in the sense over the heads of the great throng of barons collected at Runnymede he said right uh, that's your lot take it or leave it And the Baroni negotiators did take it, but they then had to sell it to the assembled throng at Runnymede, which they did over the next four days. But the result of doing this so quickly, bringing negotiations to an end, was that the names of the 25 barons who were supposed to enforce the charter are not in the charter at all. And the reason for that was actually stated in the charter, the barons hadn't had time to choose them. And so John thought, well, even if the details get known... And even if people know it's going to be enforced by the 25, no one's going to know who the 25 are. And so it's never actually going to be enforced. The other reason, of course, was that John thought, I'm going to make it jolly difficult for anyone to actually have a Magna Carta. And here John, of course, has complete control because only he can seal the charter. Only he can really authenticate it. So John thought, you know, actually, is not going to get around the country. No one's ever going to know about it. So that's my guess as to what John's speculation was. And of course, why does he in the end, in a mo- only after a month, in the end, reject the charter? Because by then, he knew he had made a catastrophic mistake, and that the charter was going to become very well known, and it was going to be enforced by the barons, to the letter and beyond and just very quickly let's look at that the first is getting the charter known now i think that's one of the interesting things which has emerged from work first done by ifa roland's about where did the originals of the charter go we know there are at least 13 originals and it seems they went to the cathedrals so they went to very safe places with sympathetic bishops looking after them. From there they may have gone on tours round the diocese, their copies were made of them. So the charters do get around, but I've already said, haven't I, that John, you know, why did he allow even 13 out of them? And here too, I think we've got some new light on this, because what seems to have emerged from the study in detail of the handwriting of two of the Magna Carta's, is that they were written not by the king's scribes, but by um, the scribes of bishops. They were written by Episcopal scribes. That may be true of Salisbury, although my friend Professor Vincent has never been able quite to convince the paleographical experts of this. Um, I like to think I've had slightly better luck in uh, arguing this of Lincoln. You see, what happened was that the bishops put terrific pressure on John. They said, look, look, if you're not prepared to galvanise your chancery scribes, we will supply our own scribes to do it. All you've got to do, all the chancery's got to do is to seal it. In the end, John gave way to that pressure, and that's why the charter becomes known. Now, there was also, and again, this is what new research has shown, a a second or totally different avenue by which the charter becomes known. This is the triumph of the charter in 1215, because ever so many unofficial copies of it were made. Now, they can't be sealed, of course, uh, because only John can see it. But nonetheless, it provides a the text. They often seem to derive from drafts, not from the final authorised text. And what seems to have happened after negotiations at Runnymede is people swept up all this sort of draft material, took it away, and, and copied out their own versions of Magna Carta. So, as I've said, John got it wrong. The charter does become known, and that's perhaps the great triumph of 1215. If that hadn't have happened, I think the charter would never have survived. But John, of course, got it wrong in another way, in that the 25 barons did get their act together and the charter was enforced. And that's a wonderful discovery of Professor Vincent, in discovering a letter written by the 25, actually appointing four knights in Kent, but probably in every other county, to actually enforce the oath-taking to the 25. And also, of course, the the, the 12 knights in each county, they were elected. Indeed, John knew things were going wrong right at the start because this letter he was forced to issue as a condition of the peace, there it is, on the 19th, 20th. And this was a letter which actually set up the whole process of the taking of the oath to the twenty-five and the election of the twelve knights in each county. I mean, John must have been. This must have been dragged out of John because it, it, it was. It's extraordinary surrender. It's really putting the control of local government under the hands of the twenty-five. It was a Great abdication of the royal authority. And I think John, you know, just says that if I don't give way on this, there will be no peace. And so the, the charter is, becomes a very well known. It is enforced. And so John, after a month, decides that's it. Uh, I can't go on like this. My gamble has failed. And so he. it's better to resort to the, to, to the chances of war, despite what um, Stephen and, and, and Mark have said about John's lack of warlike ability. Uh, but that's better than what's happening now. And so John gets the pope to quash the charter. and. The rest is uh, history. But in a way, I sort of think the events of 1215 explain why the charter survived. Because, and I think the key thing there is how well known it was becoming from the very start. From the very start, it is digging deep roots into the hearts and minds of the political community. And that's why after John's death, the minority government of Henry III make that fundamental decision, um, of which it, the anniversary of which is is just coming up, really in November, 1216, to reissue the charter, to issue a new version of the charter. And That's how, of course, Magna Carta survived. Now they wouldn't have known, done that if they hadn't have already realised that the charter has succeeded, that people know about it, that it's been a tremendous success and so i think thank heavens for john's miscalculation um the charter does survive and that's why we're all here today thank you
2: <laughs> this podcast is copyright the national archives all rights reserved It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.